If you want peace, prepare for war. This is Parabellum, a Cyberbit podcast. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for making the time to join us this morning. What we're going to do in this morning session is we're going to look at uh, an example of an attack on US critical infrastructure. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to draw some uh, uh, some parallels and some conclusions about the kind of things that matter in terms of protecting critical national infrastructure targets and for that matter other operational technology systems that are we are all so dependent on these days. Let's begin and uh, those that join us a little late will have to uh, catch up I guess. In today's session, we'll look uh, at a grisly step, an attack overview of a particular form of attack used by the teams there. Uh, and then we'll go on to a kill chain analysis, an in-depth analysis of the approach that they used uh, and a discussion of the key parameters and key approaches, key mechanisms, and the timeline involved in this. It can be quite surprising to see the actual timelines in some of this kind of attack. Uh, we'll then look at the, the targeting of ICS and SCADA networks in particular and the general approaches both used by grisly step and the specific ones used by some of the attacks that we've seen and a discussion of some of the other attacks and the impacts of those attacks on SCADA systems. And then moving, of course, to uh, a conclusion on how to prepare to defend against this kind of attack on OT, Operational Technology Network. I also introduce myself. My name is Tony Roy. Uh, I work for Cyberbit. Uh, a little bit about my past, I guess, might be useful. Uh, I've worked in the past uh, as a, a software engineer on command and control systems, nuclear fusion reactor diagnostics, and data acquisition systems. Uh, I worked for Logica Space and Defense on uh, um, Ministry of Defense projects. Uh, and I was previously, not that long ago, as the CTO of Exclusive Networks, a network security tools distributor worldwide. I joined Cyberbit because of the exciting uh, tool sets that they have, and it was time for me to get more involved in the, uh, the manufacturing side or the uh, vendor side of activities, I thought. Come and see us. We're displaying at the InfoSec show in June of this year uh, over in London. Uh, we'll be on a stand E100. You're very welcome to come and see us, uh, find out a little bit about our technologies and uh, share the day with us. So a little bit about Cyberbit. Cyberbit is the first provider of IT, information technology, OT, operational technology, and IoT, Internet of Things uh, threat detection and response platform. So we combine all three into a single response detection and response platform. We're all over the world protecting power grids, power plants, uh, utilities, water treatment plants, smart buildings, railway systems, you name it. Wherever a computer is involved in the control of physical systems, we have that kind of technology in place. We employ just around 250 personnel now, it's slightly larger than the number we've listed, uh, and our background is as a, a spin-off of Elbit Systems, our parent company is Elbit Systems, uh, Israel's largest defense uh, manufacturer. We are the cyber arm of that division and we leverage the experience we have in Israeli military cyber intelligence and the cyber uh, community that we work with there. 
a lot of our products uh, were instigated in response to requirements from that area and then it's rapidly found that those technologies have very great and extended use across all kinds of other organizations. So uh, as a result we have a global support operation with uh, teams all over the world in Europe, Middle East, Africa and of course the United States. Uh, we're centered in Israel so our headquarters is in uh, Israel of course uh, but we extend all of the world and that includes our global support support operation throughout the world. Enough about us, let's talk about what we came here to talk about today. So, Grizzly Step. There's been quite a timeline of malicious activity over the, uh, the recent years. Uh, back in 2015, doesn't seem that long ago, but it's uh, getting on a while now. Back in 2015, there was a Black Energy Ukrainian power company's attack. They caused significant power outage, outages across a large portion of the Ukrainian power supply systems. And it was very difficult in some parts of it to regain control and to get that operational again. What they did as part of that was in uh, by using malware in critical infrastructure uh, of those target organizations. Uh, there's a whole load of information in IR Alert H16, 05601 if you wanted to look up more details on that one. Not content with that, that was a good successful attack from the perspective of, the, uh, of that team. They moved on. And we see in 2015, 2016, attacks on political party infrastructure. And they were traced back to two specific advanced persistent threat teams, Team 28 and Team 29, as they have been dubbed. And what they were aiming to do was a lot of data exfiltration. And they were using spear phishing techniques, which we'll talk about a little later, as a mechanism for targeting the key individuals that had access to the systems and information they wanted. So there's, again, there's a detailed joint analysis report on that one. Uh, the reference is there if you want to follow it up. This carries on into 2016-2017 with the now infamous NotPetya attack. Uh, ransomware was used to cause significant outages across large portions of uh, not just the target network as it happens, but it, it was aimed at causing disruption across significant portions of Ukraine's infrastructure on the day, uh, on, a, on the national holiday, in fact, on Ukraine's national holiday. And it, it was instigated over some period before. We call it not Petya because they used a variant of Petya, which was ransomware that we had seen before. The major difference being, being that it was much more capable in, in its ability to uh, exploit and maneuver across networks using PSExec, WMI, and various SMB version 1 exploits. So it's very capable of moving itself from network to network. But the difference, main difference between this and Petya was that it was never, ever going to let anybody recover the files that it encrypted. Uh, there was no intention ever in the way that it was set up for the keys to be made available to anybody who had been affected. That's a really interesting one because the initial infection vector was actually via a trusted third party. Uh, many organizations in Ukraine depend on uh, the accounting software of a Ukrainian company, a Ukrainian software company, and the initial infection was via updates from this Ukrainian uh, accounting company. And those were then trusted updates which were applied across all sorts of systems, both within Ukraine and beyond. Uh, and as a result, the NotPetya ransomware that wasn't ransomware affected many, many thousands of systems. That exploit uh, and particular attack went far beyond the initial intended targets because there were other users of the uh, Ukrainian software beyond the borders of Ukraine uh, and certain subsidiaries of companies within Ukraine uh, that were affected. So uh, companies like Maersk, uh, International Shipping Organization, were very, very badly affected by it. 
very significant attack for that period. And it was interesting because it used a different attack vector in terms of a version of ransomware. Move on to present, 30, uh, 2013, 2014, right up to where we are now. And there is routine cyber activity that's targeting critical national infrastructure in all sorts of countries. Uh, and they're doing that on a constant basis, mainly in terms of reconnaissance. And we all believe that this is to prepare for potential attacks should they want to instigate them. So what they're looking at is uh, reconnaissance on critical national infrastructure facilities, water treatment, power systems, petrochemical, uh, railway systems, control systems for uh, air aircraft handling, you name it. Those systems are being reviewed in terms of reconnaissance on a regular basis. They do that through combinations of spear phishing, drive-by downloads, and as we'll see a little later on, some watering hole techniques to gather credentials in order to get that reconnaissance information. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, attacker group that we're going to discuss today. Dubbed Dragonfly, they have various other names as well, like Energetic Bear, Koala, and Iron Liberty. Uh, different teams come up with different names for these. I think personally we may be giving them uh, too much kudos by giving them these uh, attractive names or whatever we believe they may be, we're better sticking to just simple group names like APT 28 and 29, in my opinion. This particular group is clearly politically motivated. Uh, you can trace their countries of origin. But it's a good example uh, to consider that not just any one country is involved in this, there are large numbers of countries involved in this uh, activity. And it is pretty much to be expected now to be a, a, an arm of any future warfare will include the attacks on infrastructure through uh, cyber techniques, because it's a, a simple and uh, reliable method that causes the least risk to those involved in the attacks in the first place. That's where the political motivation comes in. They focus on critical national infrastructure, uh, but it, the techniques are widely applicable across all sorts of other organizations as well that use, in this case particularly, uh, operational technologies as part of their control systems in manufacturing and development of, uh, of equipment. So the main vect uh, vectors for this uh, attack group are phishing emails and watering hole. That's where they start their initial attacks. And we'll look at those in a little bit more terms of detail a little later on. But that's not where they stop. It's not simply just some phishing emails and some watering hole attacks. They take that far beyond that to leverage access and beyond. And we'll see that in what we look at uh, when we look at the attack line. So what kind of industries are being targeted? All of the energy sector, both in terms of uh, energy production and energy distribution. Uh, the nuclear industry, for obvious reasons, that's always the target. Um, there's lots of examples in the past of uh, different nuclear facilities being targeted. Commercial facilities, where they're useful in terms of providing key resources in terms of national organization. Uh, water, of course, water treatment and water supply is essential for every country and therefore becomes a very interesting target for a politically motivated attacker. Aviation, because it's about communications, so the aviation industry, all your baggage handling and other things like that can be very, very easily disrupted uh, using operational technology attacks, and that can cause chaos for significant periods of time. And of course, all other forms of manufacturing, from food manufacturing, uh, petrochemicals, agrochemicals, 
uh, and to, of course physical device manufacture uh, in the computing industry and car industry for example all of these become really important in the day-to-day -day activities and lives of all of us so let's have a look at the uh, the way we're going with grizzly step i'll look at the attack flow first of all so we'll, we'll look at it, how it worked from here and then we'll go into the kill chain in detail in the next few slides so grizzly step in action was a targeted attack established where they had research specific individuals so they targeted individuals in readiness, found out who they are, what roles they have, what interests they have, what access they have, what kind of systems they use, what kind of operational technologies at the back end of all of this as well. So they need to research both the internal IT organization, the individuals who use that, but also the individuals who are going to be working on the control stations, the control network as well. And of course, from there, they were interested ultimately in how do they get access to the final targets, the power generation facilities, or for even, for that matter, the transformation, uh, transformer substations as well. So in this case, they were aiming at the power generation facility. Their particular approach, and there are lots of other approaches here, their particular approach was a, a combination of spear phishing, the targeted individuals within uh, the organization in the IT network. So they needed to be able to get access to the IT network in the first instance in order to get more control and more access to the rest of the systems. So they used spear phishing where they targeted specific individuals with individual targeted document attacks and other components to uh, entice them to click on things and to from that to be able to gain credentials of those individuals. Watering hole techniques is another part of that. It's another vector that they can use in terms of gathering those credentials. So we'll look at a couple of examples of their particular technique later on. Once they've done that, they have the potential then for uh, leveraging remote access to the OT network, sorry, to the IT network in the first instance. So for example, getting remote desktop access via VPN, having gathered credentials from individuals. And once they've got access to the enterprise network, they're then able to move laterally within here to find other systems that give them access. And often, and in particular, the Grizzly Step Attack looks for the mechanisms to get through the firewalls to the control network. Theoretically, there should be no connection whatsoever between the enterprise network and the control network. But operational requirements often mean that there are, although they're firewalled, and that gives people a level of confidence about how this access is made, those firewalled accesses do take place, and it does mean that there are data paths between the networks. These guys are looking for those data paths, trying to find the systems and the credentials that will let them use that limited access. And once they're on the control network here, the OT network, uh, they're the primarily looking for the human machine interface workstation. If you think of old power stations, what you would see is the, the huge wall full of dials and switches and levers and the rest of it. Uh, that's all been replaced in modern systems with an HMI, which is the software equivalent. It has great advantages in terms of the simplicity and of course the uh, modifiability of that kind of system compared to physical control systems. So it's become very, very popular in all roles and all uh, walks of life in uh, SCADA systems and operational technologies. That system is the one that gives them the complete view of what's happening in all the uh, PLCs, the control systems, uh, and through that to be able to see the status of boilers, turbines, the steam turbines, the gas pipelines, the steam 
pipelines, the generator outputs and inputs, the transformers, the switches, the circuit breakers, and all of the other physical components within that controlled network. Having been able to look at that, they can then start to map it out and begin to construct the ideas of how they would attack it. What could they do to that system to cause significant interruption? And that's the process we're looking at. They're looking at, first of all, gaining individuals, uh, credentials, using those credentials to gain access to the network, using that access to get further access to other components in the network, to find their way through over to the operational technology network, to map that out and to find access eventually to the HMI station and from the HMI station to start mapping out and working out the systems behind it. What exactly is in control? How are those controls placed? What key parameters are in use? And then potentially from that information to work out direct attacks on the PLCs, the, the uh, programmable logic controllers that are actually controlling the devices and monitoring them. So that's the workflow that we're looking at. Let's go into that in more detail, the kill chain. So there's several phases to the kill chain for this one. Reconnaissance, that's where we find the individuals, find the systems, and get, gather useful intelligence, uh, actionable intelligence about how we could target this organization. Then there's weaponization. That's where we start to use that information to create weaponized tools that we can access these individuals with. And there'll be multiple phases of weaponization as we prepare the different tools for the different phases of attack. Then there's the deliveries. Having got that weaponization completed, there's the actual delivery phase, which is where we initialize the attack. The exploitation phase, where we move and transition through the systems, uh, gaining uh, leveraged access from one network to the next to the next, and gaining privilege and control as we go. Through to the installation, where we add the additional tools and the additional attack components that we'll need. And then finally, command and control to be able to actually uh, execute on the final targets, the ultimate target being the OT network, and then ultimately the actions on those objectives on H hour when they begin the final phase of the attack, but we shall have the most significant part of the impact. Up until that point, they're aiming to stay completely anonymous, anonymous and undetected, right up to the point where they initialize their actions on objectives, where of course they're going to have significant impact in terms of damage or disruption, both of which could be targets for them. Let's start on the reconnaissance then. So by identifying the staging targets, they're looking for third-party vendors, other people and other uh, components and systems that the organization will depend on, contractors, uh, third-party vendors, the equipment vendors that you use, the software vendors that you use, and they'll map those to the operational target, to the specific target that they're going for. They'll then, then download in target, intended target web source code. So they're aiming to infect systems uh, with the source code that they're looking for. And they'll start by looking at the websites, the source code of the websites themselves, used by the organizations, both the third parties and the organization itself. Of course, that's easy to do. You just need website suckers to be able to absorb that source code. And then they can use that analysis to determine what attack vectors would be possible through those websites. They'll then start to look at things like your email conventions, the target organization's email conventions. Do you use Gmail? Do you use Outlook? Is it Outlook web access possible? Uh, are you using third-party or 
external providers are using gateways. What are the uh, the DNS settings for your email servers, etc.? So they go through all of that uh, process to understand and begin to craft how they could attack via email. So we're talking about the spear phishing elements here. They look for personnel information as well. They need to know about the individuals. So we, uh, they'll target the organization in terms of the website to understand what kind of people there are. They might use third-party tools like LinkedIn and all of the other sites of a similar nature, Facebook, etc., to profile those individuals once they've found out about them. And it's amazing what you can find out. If you find out that XYZ works for a particular power company, go onto their LinkedIn profile, you'll often find their latest and greatest certifications. And that starts to tell you the kinds of software and systems that they're using. From that, you may also find their hobbies. And the hobbies are interesting because that's another target website that you could go for in terms of attacking those specific individuals. So if one uh, target you found was particularly interested in astronomy in his spare time, you may then map out the web astronomy websites that they use because they may be potentially easier targets in terms of infecting his system. So that's the kind of thing that goes on in the background. They'll also go, of course, download all sorts of other public information about the organization to understand the organizational structure, photos of individuals, by uh, depending on how much is available via HR, LinkedIn, etc. And, of course, target the external-facing websites to start uh, exposing data there to see what's useful and what's possible from there. Moving on, we go to weaponization. So they know the individuals they want to go for now. They know the email systems you're using. They know the websites that you use. And then then start to begin weaponization. This is where you prepare documents and emails for use in the attack. They'll be very careful to make sure those emails look exactly the way they should, from the source that they should, and in the format that they should. Maybe uh, by crafting an email that appears to be from an internal colleague, a, a senior line manager, for example, or a junior for that matter. Uh, exactly formatted based on the, uh, the reconnaissance that they've carried out. So they'll know exactly what the documents should look like, exactly what the emails should look like, and they'll start to prepare those documents and emails ready for the targeting. They'll have their mail list of the candidates that they want to hit with the right email convention and from the right spoofed origins. It will be often multiple origins that they'll use. As for the spear phishing, that's where they're targeting specific individuals using the information they know about them to use social engineering mechanisms to get them to do what they want them to do, which is often to click on a link and give away key credentials. The other attack technique, particularly the, the grizzly gun gang use, is the watering holes mechanism. And that's where we talk about the third party websites potentially that you use. For example, if they've worked out that you use uh, Outlook web access for certain individuals, what they'll do is try to get those individuals to go to a tampered version, uh, a, a falsified version of Outlook web access, where they will present their OWA credentials. And now they've gathered those, they can use them to start sending emails internally in the organization. So watering holes are where we've mapped and selected specific sites that the organization's personnel will use. Maybe internal ones, maybe uh, public commercial ones, maybe private hobby ones that they use, which are often a good source of that because they're uh, less well defended typically. They'll also use all sorts of information, maybe the trade publication websites you use, uh, the control manufacturers websites that you use, and they'll use all of those mechanisms to harvest credentials from those 
Project's uh, website. That then moves us on to the post-exploitation preparation. So we, we're still in the weaponization phase. Now we're getting the further elements of the attack ready in advance of launching the attack. So they're looking at creating uh, web shell installations based on the information they've already mapped about the target network and the infrastructure that they use behind it. And those web shell installations will allow them the further command control that they'll be able to establish once they've launched the attack. They'll also create a, a the set of customized command and controls that they will use and the command control server or servers that they intend to use as the way of operating when they launch the attack on the site. So they'll make, create those to match the target operation for that, organi uh, for that targeted uh, system. Then we get to delivery. So now it's when they launch. They're ready. They've got everything prepared. They've got their next phases ready to install. It's now about delivery. So they begin their spear phishing approach, sending the targeted individuals uh, the specific emails to exactly the people that they've selected. It's not like mass campaigns. They are very targeted, maybe five, six individuals, 10 individuals, not much more than that. Very specific crafted emails to specific targeted individuals. And often they'll use bots for the delivery of those, which help them mask the origins and make the origins look appropriate. They'll also use, at this point, their watering holes. They'll execute their watering hole attacks using exploited application vulnerabilities and misconfiguration in the third-party websites that you use as mechanisms for uh, diverting your attention and getting you to put in your credentials potentially in the wrong locations. They may also use that as a way of delivering malware through uh, potential web browser exploits. So there's lots of opportunities with watering holes to take over control or to at least begin to gather credentials from individuals. They'll use previously collected credentials to begin uh, to uh, obtain and escalate their privilege. So they'll want to gain administrator logins on that targeted system ultimately. And this is a way of doing it so they can use those mechanisms for beginning to escalate privilege. Administrator accounts are always the, the key to these kind of attacks for them because once they've got those, they can create additional administrator accounts. They can delete files, modify systems, change priorities, change access rights, and all of the other things that they need to do for later phases. The exploitation flow, let's look at that then. So they'll send those phishing emails and uh, compromise those third-party websites in order to create the watering holes. They'll harvest the credentials and often using, in this particular attack, they used SMB redirect, which we'll talk about a little bit more. SMB redirects are a mechanism of ex uh, getting the remote systems to automatically send you the hashed credentials that are stored locally. After that, they start to drop the Trojans onto the targets using various social engineering techniques. Now, remember, of course, they may have web and email access uh, already created at this stage, which will allow them to uh, gain trust within the organization and therefore to be able to get Trojans delivered with ease to other individuals within the organization. And then finally, they'll use those stolen credentials for lateral movement. Having found uh, your Outlook web access, quite often they'll uh, expect that same credential set, the username and password, will often work on other systems within the organization. Uh, very few people actually follow the rules about keeping completely separate usernames and passwords for different systems. Quite often, passwords in particular get reused. And that is a significant weakness that these guys are ready to exploit. Having done that, so how do they get to these credentials from the third party sites? Well, one way is using phishing to masquerade 
uh, and get you to go to an uh, Outlook Web Access login page, for example. And that's exactly what they did in this particular case because they'd already established that this target organization used Outlook and in specifically used Outlook Web. So they're able to use phishing techniques to masquerade and get the, uh, the uh, unfortunate victims, the initial targeted individuals, to click on links that opened what looks like a completely valid Outlook web access page. And then when they enter their credentials, those are going straight to these uh, the attacker's staging servers, their command and control server. They also used SMB attacks uh, to change the landing JavaScript and PHP pages. There's a get command that can be established within that that allows them to uh, cause this SMB redirect. The SMB redirect means that when they're logging in, the details that they're uh, typing aren't, uh, sorry, their credentials, which are hashed locally, are automatically sent off-site to this redirected site. What does that mean? It means that the hashed credentials, the password, usernames and passwords, which are hashed uh, on that system using NTLM, network, uh, the old NT LAN manager, very old protocol, uh, are accessible to the attacker. The SMB that redirect attack simply tells the system to send the NTLM hashes off-site to this other location instead. It's been around quite a few years and has been used extensively uh, in all sorts of attacks. That's part of what they used in, in this particular case. And they, then, having got those hashes, they can simply extract those passwords using various password cracking tools, uh, rainbow tables, etc. So a hash, all they do is look up the hashes in these huge tables of uh, hashed example passwords, and they can look back to the, the potential actual password that you're using. So those kind of password crackers have been around a long time. There's another component to it, and that was to deliver a, a document. Uh, maybe they send a, a Word document to the site, and that would be used uh, sent to targeted individuals, maybe people in the HR department, or people they know to be recruiting, or people that they know that were asking for documentation, whatever it might be. And they would use that, uh, create those using the open source fishery framework. You can actually uh, download that if you wanted to understand more about it from the GitHub website. So it's widely available. So they weren't using and crafting uh, unique tools for this attack. They were using a lot of existing common uh, open source tools. That added a hidden reference to the remote template file in the document. And that was able then to utilize again that SMP, SMB redirect attack together those NTLM hashes. So typically, a targeted email would uh, would contain a Word document. Obviously, that targeted email is crafted to look exactly right from the source and destination perspective. The included document would be there. Uh, maybe in this case, it's a, a CV of a, uh, an individual. Looks completely normal. They open it. When they open it, there are no macros or other code embedded in the SMB, uh, sorry, in the document, but the SMB redirect is in that document. And that causes, as soon as they open the document, no scripts run, but the NTLM hash credentials are sent to the attacker's staging server. So they now have the hashed passwords of the, the individual that has just opened the document. So it's a carefully crafted document, looks completely normal and wouldn't raise any uh, eyebrows at all and would have a very high probability of being opened by the targeted individuals. So part of that exploitation phase that we're looking at is how did they get that backdoor in? So the open source fishery framework, uh, you can see a little example on screen, includes the component necessary to uh, install that uh, SMB redirect. And it's a standard component that can be added to, uh, to documents and would include the redirects for web pages, et cetera. You can do it through web 
uh, web documents, JavaScript, PHP, all sorts of other components will allow the, uh, the redirect to be installed. And it's a standard part. It's actually a, a mechanism provided by Microsoft in the uh, NTLM uh, mechanisms. So having established that, we've got the, uh, the document delivered. They then move on to further exploitation. So they would use, for example, fake Adobe Flash updates or other system utilities that they have targeted. They know the organization uses, and they know the individuals are routinely used to seeing updates for them. So masquerading as a, a, a fake Flash, uh, Adobe Flash update is a particularly good way of getting your utilities added to the targets. They'll use multi-phase droppers. So that dropper would be uh, a simple one to start with. It would reach out and get additional components and then uh, remove the initial uh, infection vector and uh, once it's downloaded and chained to the uh, further tools that they're using. So they do self-deletion to cover their tracks as they're going leaving only the final component that they wanted to deliver to the system. They'll use down all sorts of those downloaded password cracking tools like Hydra, Secrets Dump, Crack, Map, Exec, and all these other uh, tools to break those uh, hashes, so to look up those hashes and turn them back into passwords that they can use. And in fact, in some cases, they don't need even to, uh, to crack the hashes. They can simply replay the hashes to gain access to some of the systems because they are valid credentials within the organization. So it depends on the targeting, the system they're targeting, but they could do it through uh, actually cracking the hashes or simply replaying them. Uh, they used a number of backdoors. In this particular case, uh, a set of those allowing them to gain long-term access and persistence within the organization. And on the, the right here, we can see something from our own EDR tool, which uh, creates the, the attack structure that they saw by uh, watching the code as it executes on a target system. So we see it, uh, the attack chain where the file was initial file is dropped, uh, moves to an inst.exe, that uh, chains to create a new one. There's a command shell used to add additional registry keys to give the persistence that we want. And then, of course, using uh, NTDLL, uh, they've got the lat lateral movement. So it uses PSExec, another standard compon component of uh, Windows, which allows it to run uh, various command shells and command scripts to move further across the system. So I've got the, the Trojans installed on the system. We now are at the stage where we can start to uh, add additional elements within the system. So let's look at that again. We added the persistent backdoor so that we've got long-term access to the target systems. We created an administrator account. So uh, we've got some level of admin or access already. I'm using that. We've created an additional administrator account, which is unlikely to be uh, tested or tripped up by other individuals within the organization. And then using that administrator account access, they're able to start disabling local firewalls within the, the, uh, the device itself, the Windows firewall or uh, changing the rules at least, and potentially moving on to gain administrator privileges for other firewalls within the organization, including the gateway firewalls. And then of course, they'll have opened that to allow remote desktop access. And now they may as well be sitting inside your network. Once they've got that remote desktop access, they can start now to download additional tools from their remote server and establish that long-term access and control uh, on your network. This allows them to move around within the network, to establish uh, a, a mapping of all of the other systems, and to slowly build the access that they need. It's worth noting that right up to the delivery phase uh, that we mentioned here, in this particular attack, it was one and a half to two years before 
they got to this delivery stage. So all of their reconnaissance, weaponization, and research, the intelligence gathering, took place over a long period of time. And then as it went from, through the delivery, uh, it was another period of time before they started to get to the full exploitation and installation phase. So what we're looking at here is attackers who have a great number of resources and a great deal of patience. They are politically motivated and well funded for their activities and they are prepared to take long periods of time to establish this kind of attack. So if we look at that installation again using uh, something from our EDR tool that looks at the processes running on a system to establish a process tree, we can see that they used persistency to modify uh, the registry key to gain that long-term persistence on the system, uh, for example, adding auto-run registry keys for their, uh, the components that they've installed. They modify the network to change the firewall rules, and they'll also then start to manage services to uh, switch on or switch off the services they want. And they'll also manage user accounts, creating their own additional administrator accounts as necessary. So we can see all of that activity using our EDR tool. So at this stage, They've gone a long way towards their objective. The threat actors have created web shells on the target's public email servers and, uh, uh, and web servers. So they've got good level of access that gives them internal and external access from the system. They've got complete access to all of the key parts of the network that they need. VPN access, remote desktop, uh, remote access to terminal server and the firewalls through NetShell, administrative access to other firewalls within the organization and open access to, to allow them to have that long-term command and control through those firewalls. They've got administrative access to email servers, and they've also got access, admin access to the websites they need. So pretty much they can deliver anything to anyone in that organization that they want to at any time. That means they can start now to move to their final actions on objective. This is where they start to attack the real uh, real systems that they've been aiming at, and that is the SCADA and ICS networks, the industrial control systems. They now start to map and work their way through to those systems. They've got key administrative privileges that will both let them traverse the network and cover their tracks by deleting evidence, for example, logs. And now they're ready to focus on their main objectives, the operational technology control systems. They'll work now to attack the SCADA systems, and that what they'll do is plan and investigate the HMI so gain access to the HMI and plan by mapping out its functions, working out what systems it uses, what vendor control components it uses, what code it uses, and they'll start to work out and plan the final phase of the attack. A part of that will often be creating the mechanisms necessary to lock out the real control engineers' accounts as well for the duration of the attack, allowing them full access unfettered by people being able to fix problems as they're creating them. And of course, another part of their administrator access would allow them to destroy key recovery files that those engineers would need if they're able to recover the system. So they've been very careful to create the circumstances necessary to form this attack. So what do they do when they're targeting the ICS? Well, that crown jewels, as we mentioned, is gaining access to the HMI, the Human Machine Interface. Uh, this is a, an example. This was taken from uh, a US CERT presentation. Uh, parts of this display have been redacted because it actually shows key operational information that they didn't want to share at the event. Uh, uh, when you see HMIs, some of them can be uh, a lot more sim uh, a lot simpler than this, a lot easier to understand. But this is a real HMI from a targeted uh, operation. You'll see within there, there are certain values that uh, are showing the re results 
of monitoring, but also it's possible to change settings in some of these as well. These are the results of the feedback loops from the PLCs and other control equipment. So we're receiving the outputs from the uh, monitoring equipment that's attached, attached to the PLCs. But also using this interface, we're able to make changes to the, uh, the settings on those PLCs. For example, opening valves, closing valves, etc. This is the target for the, uh, the attackers, ultimately. They need to be able to gain access to this, create an understanding of its functions, and from that, begin to plan what elements that they would attack and how on the SCADA systems, maybe by changing uh, elements within the HMI itself, or using the information they've gained about the, uh, the HMI operations and the background information about the vendors, the uh, operational technology vendors that are in use, to attack the PLCs directly themselves. So they've copied the profile and configuration information and maybe duplicated the HMI in their own environments to be able to understand what's going on. So having done that, they're now in a very strong position to be able to have uh, real access and impact on the physical systems, the boilers, steam output, steam turbines, generators, uh, even for, as far as circuit breakers, transformers, etc. So they've gained access to the IT network. Through that, they've leveraged access to be able to understand what files are in place to gain additional privileged access to be able to modify the rules on the firewall in order to get through if they weren't already. They've worked around this network and they've finally located the HMI workstation and they've gained access to the HMI. And from that, they're able to map and understand the systems being in use here and to begin to exercise their attack. Of course, there shouldn't really be access between these layers, but in the real world, there is. And that's because the HMI, the control network, obviously needs to be able to interface with these, but systems here also need to be able to talk to key elements of the control network on occasions, maybe because it's for remote updates, or maybe it's for operational data that needs to be fed to the enterprise from the control network. But these links, more often than not, exist. And that is what the attacker, in this case, exploited. There are other uh, approaches, of course. There may be Wi-Fi access in remote locations for the uh, transformer substations. There may be uh, remote access directly to uh, PLCs from uh, modems, which are also forms of access that could be used. But whatever mechanisms there are, the attackers will find them. And in this case, the vast majority of them will be via the IT network. So I guess one of the reasons is why are SCADA networks at risk? Having been able to gain access via the IT network, what is it that they can do and how is it that they can do it? Well, a lot of the problems come from the SCADA protocols being very old. Uh, a lot of them were simply serial protocols that were transferred over to networks. And because those networks were never going to be connected to uh, any other kind of network, they were only ever going to be industrial control networks, they didn't do anything much in terms of additional authentication, encryption of the protocols, or fault uh, improvement in terms of the protocols where they work. So the lack of authentication, they're rarely patched. Some of these protocols are very old, uh, and it's a simple architecture, really serial communications over, uh, uh, over control networks. That was okay as long as they were never going to be connected, and I, I myself have this experience. Uh, long ago in my past, I worked on some of those conversions of those serial protocols to network protocols uh, in my time working on 
a fusion reactor project. Uh, and my time there, after finishing those projects, I then also moved on to the next project, which was part of the internet access for that site. And one of the next projects we were immediately asked to do was to provide remote access to the diagnostics on the fusion reactor, on the test fusion reactor, for uh, scientists in Princeton in the US, and also for people in Tokyo, universities in Tokyo, and then it extended to other university, universities thereafter. So immediately, we were moved from uh, a non-connected network to an internationally connected network, and of course, all the problems that go with that. So there are connections between IT networks uh, that include remote access, uh, connections between the IT network and the OT network itself, and of course, as we move to uh, uh, wider platforms of controlled devices, the smart things that we're getting these days, we get the whole Internet of Things platform that fits into this environment too. So lack of visibility is a, a key problem in this one. Uh, with all the different manufacturers in the OT environment, often they will provide tools to be able to map their own devices and their own systems, but there's little that will show you all of those different vendors at the same time, and very little at all that will show you the IT networks and the OT networks all combined. And the lack of monitoring of those kind of systems too. It's always been assumed that the SCADA and OT networks would never be connected. Therefore, there was not much to be done in terms of monitoring. So that's what we're looking at. We lack, lack of visibility about assets and a lack of visibility about the actual connections and communications that are taking place between the OT devices. That opens all of these SCADA protocols, all sorts of attacks. For example, in the energy uh, environment, they may be able to look at how they could change the steam turbine uh, temperature settings to invalid arguments. So maybe overspinning the turbines and damaging the turbines or not providing enough steam to the turbine to be able to generate power. So that's one set. Power plants, you may be able to set a centrifuge value to inv invalid spinning speeds. There's a particular Stuxnet attack, which is infamous in that respect. Uh, in the nuclear industry, they could look at how they could change the water cooling temperatures, default settings to cause problems within the nuclear plant. Within healthcare, it could be about data exfiltration, uh, exfiltrating data from uh, about uh, patients in particular is very valuable to all sorts of organizations. It could be blocking access and control of MRI and CT scanners. Water treatment plants, we could see them changing the chemical settings. There are all sorts of chemicals used in water treatment. Uh, not, uh, For example, aluminium powder is part of the treatment commonly used. And if they dumped huge quantities of aluminium powder into the water, it can have very long-term uh, devastating effects on the, uh, the consuming uh, public. On the airport system, they may manipulate the luggage transport systems. Remember, all of that is a controlled network uh, with physical devices controlled by computers. And again, they could cause major disruption at an airport by uh, manipulating that luggage transport system. Um, all kinds of manufacturing would be open to this as well. For example, to uh, disrupt or destroy key elements of manufacturing uh, manufacturing lines. And of course, within the power grid, they could be looking at opening circuit breakers, causing a significant long-term outage and, until it's been resolved. So there's many different uh, ICS 
attack use cases. And by no means is this exhaustive. It's all down to the imagination of the attackers, in effect. So it's worth noting that more than 90% of the OT attacks started in IT networks. So Black Energy, the Ukrainian power outages, started in the IT network. Havex, a European ICS manufacturer organization, back in 2014, that started in the IT network. And the New York Dam, uh, that one's worth looking up if you want to know more details of it. Uh, access to the command and control system was established, first of all, through the IT network. And we're seeing a number of attacks on the UK energy sector routinely, uh, and that will ex- uh, we can expect that to continue in the long term. All of them start with attacks on the IT network, the low-hanging fruit. So what can we do to prepare for it? What can we do to be ready? And how do we deal with it? Well, first of all, it's deadly important that you enhance your IT security. You need to First of all, make sure that passwords, if they have to be used, if we still can't get away from passwords, that they aren't reused, that they're properly configured in terms of complexity. You want a decent level of complexity in order to make sure those passwords can't simply be detected or found. And better still, to use multi-token, sorry, multi-vector tokens, so two-factor, three-factor authentication mechanisms, which dispense with the requirement for static passwords altogether. Also important is the concept of least privilege. Uh, Individuals should have no more access than they absolutely require in order to carry out their normal role. So least privilege, uh, uh, preventing that simple escalation of privileges for the attackers and their minimum access as required. Further, we want to put as many separations in the network as possible. So network segmentation to make it as uh, very difficult for the attacker to move from network to network to network. The more networks there are and the more difficult the transition from one network to another is, the better. And of course, protective monitoring. You should be following really good system monitoring to understand exactly what's happening who's accessing what, and to have mechanisms to actually enforce the, uh, the, the results of that monitoring. In other words, so for example, if somebody makes multiple attempts to log on to a system and fails, that shouldn't just be logged and left logged in a system somewhere. That should be investigated. Multiple attack, uh, sorry, multiple logon failures indicates that somebody could be trying to access a system they shouldn't be accessing. And that's a key indicator of a potential attack taking place. So uh, in the UK, uh, the good guides towards protective monitoring, uh, Good Practice Guide 13 is available. And uh, if you look that up, GPG 13, you'll find good indications of advice around the whole concept of protective monitoring. It's worth revisiting the architecture of the network. We mentioned about segmentation. In fact, there's a there's a Purdue model, which is specific for SCADA control systems, which uh, details uh, the recommendations around the separation and segmentation of networks. And we should be looking for as many uh, segments are as appropriate for the proper separation of control, but the operational requirements still to be maintained within the networks. So one flat network is not acceptable. It really is important to have different layers across the network. Uh, In this example, we've got an enterprise network, the industrial enterprise DMZ, and then multiple industrial control segments. Uh, And that could be including multiple layers within that industrial network as well. 
that architecture will allow us to have more control between the separate layers. We need visibility, though. We need to be able to see exactly what is communicating. So we need a full understanding of the assets, both the IT assets and the operational technology assets that are in play. So you want to understand all of the touch points and all the communications that should take place. Having established uh, a view, and this is from our own SCADA Shield product, we're able to see not the, the physical topology of the network, but the actual communication paths that systems uh, are, are carrying out. So the physical communications, uh, the actual communications at protocol levels that they're talking. And within that, of course, we can see the details of the communications that they are exchanging. So in this particular example, we can see the blue networks, uh, the blue lines are showing IT protocols, and the pink lines are showing uh, specific SCADA protocols in use. And we can see the extent that, in some cases, IT networks are speaking to SCADA, uh, SCADA systems. This mapping, having created this map, it's a great audit tool for the operational engineers to be able to check and verify that the communications that they believe should be taking place are taking place and that there are no extraneous communications that they're not expecting. So this is a great view for those engineers to be able to uh, review everything that's taking place in terms of the communications going on on the system. As part of that, you want to be able to identify your devices. So you need to know the details, its type, the operating system, the firmware level, the serial number, its network address, IP address, its physical MAC address, when it was last seen, when it last spoke on the network, its last firmware update, its last configuration change, and any other information that you need to record about that system. So you want a good view of the assets within the system. You want to understand any password mechanisms that could be. Some of these systems will have factory uh, accounts with hard-coded passwords. Those you need to be aware of because that kind of thing is going to be used by an attacker. So a good asset system will indicate the known vulnerabilities for that particular kind of device. And in, the, in this case, we can see this one has a, a factory account with hard-coded passwords that can't be changed. It's got it stores passwords in a recoverable format, and it's no restriction on the uh, on the password database. In other words, anybody creating passwords on it can create simple passwords and reuse passwords if they wanted to. So that gives us an indication of the kind of problems that we might see on that device. Full asset registry is essential. Then we want to be able to create policies. There are key parameters in any control network that we want to be able to monitor. And if there are any variations to that, we need to be able to be aware of them. So we want to know if uh, uh, and be able to create policies for key values to be monitored on the network. So for example, you might want to know if two valves are open at the same time, because it may be an operational requirement that those two valves in a chemical plant are never opened at the same time. You could put a policy in place to detect that, and that's the facility that you want. You want to be able to enforce those operational policies at all times and to be able to detect those misconfigurations, maybe software misconfigurations, missettings, uh, administrator faults, uh, operator faults, whatever they might be. You want to be able to detect known vulnerabilities. So if somebody is applying a known vulnerability in the network, i.e. attacker has got access and is carrying out an attack that has been seen elsewhere before, you want to be able to de detect and alert on it as quickly as possible. And of course, then, that will give you an indication of where you need to patch. 
So applications may be exploitable, and you need to be aware of those vulnerabilities and be able to detect if anything is attempting to exploit those vulnerabilities. And really, you will need a full understanding of everything that should take place on the network. And once you've got that baseline, a thorough understanding of all the communications, devices, and the protocols that are in use, you want to be able to detect any anomalies, any variation from that uh, base point, that baseline. Uh, and those anomalies would give you potential indications of attacks, unknown attacks that we've never seen before, because they might introduce a new workstation, they might introduce a new protocol, they might use a new communication in an existing protocol between two devices, and those which should be detectable. And that would give us that anomaly detection mechanism to, to find any variation from the baseline. That would also detect unauthorized changes that have been made in the network, maybe by valid engineers, but at least we've got the visibility of them that we didn't have before. So we want to know the network components affected, the location. We want to know the anomaly type. And we want to know just how severe that particular variation from the baseline is. And of course, ideally, if we have the root cause of it, uh, maybe a recommendation on the steps to carry out. Okay, that uh, about concludes our session on uh, the OC attack, operational technology attack mechanisms available. Uh, and that's also given us a little bit of a view of how we might deal with those attacks, and particularly the changes to our networks with segmentation that we should carry out and the ability to create and understand the assets that are in place and all of the communications that should or should not be taking place between those assets. Okay, I'll uh, stop at that level. And if there are any questions, now would be a good time. Okay, please uh, consider coming to see us at the InfoSec show. Uh, again, we're on uh, the stands there. Uh, you'll be very welcome and I'd love to meet you. And if there are any further uh, information you would like about SCADA Shield uh, or demonstration of our system in place, by all means, please get in touch. We'd be delighted to show you more about our industrial detection and response platform. Yes, there's a question. Is there a demo available? We have uh, demonstration systems that we can set up so we could arrange demos, uh, but either via WebEx or uh, by going to site and doing demonstrations. Uh, and we'd be able to show exactly how we detect uh, baseline systems, how do we detect variations in control communications taking place, and the kind of abilities that uh, SCADA Shield has in terms of all of the operational technology and IoT networks that you see. So uh, there's a question, is scanning for the asset detection passive or active? It's passive. Uh, we have uh, sensors that go uh, into key points, key choke points in the control network, which allow us in their software sensors or if physical hardware devices if necessary. And we take the uh, traffic from uh, those choke switches, the switches that will see the majority of that traffic, either as uh, in the form of a span port or mirror port, as they're sometimes called on the switch, or ideally from a passive tap, a, a tap into that network, which will give us 100% of the traffic reliably. And of course, has no impact on the network itself and does not give us the ability to inject packets into that control network. Uh, we do have a mode of our sensors, which allows them to be in, uh, in line, which of course does mean that they're not passive in that mode. Uh, that would be a deployment option. Uh, and of course, in that mode, they can actually block and reset traffic if required. Uh, but that's that's unusual. Not, not many customers go down that route. So the sensors tend to be deployed uh, in their uh, data acquisition only mode, their passive mode. So I think we've reached the, the end of the session. Uh, thank you very much for attending today. I hope you found 
yeah, useful information in it. And by all means, come and see us at the show. And we may be able to demonstrate at the show for you if you don't get to see it beforehand. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.